Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a decision by the unqualified Trump-appointed judge in Florida who was confirmed after Trump had lost the election and had barely practiced law and was never a judge but was a member of the Federalist and was able to give Trump what he wanted but then much more by shutting down the DOJ's investigation into the missing classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. With almost all legal analysts and even Bill Barr questioning Judge Cannon's ruling, we will speak with a Florida attorney, Daniel Ulfelder, who served as a law clerk and a staff aide in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., Known widely as Florida's Grim Reaper, he works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. Then we go to the UK to get an assessment of the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, and speak with Paul Whiteley, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, where he does research in political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behaviour. He was previously Professor of Political Science at the University of Arizona and the Pamela Harriman Professor of Government and Public Policy at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. With the ruling Conservative Party paralysed for months by leadership struggles, the energy crisis caused by Putin's war in Ukraine is only being addressed now as prices for gas and electricity have gone through the roof and will leave most Britons out in the cold this winter. Nevertheless, today Liz Truss entered number 10 Downing Street, promising tax cuts for the super wealthy. Then finally we look into how ranked choice voting made a difference in the recent elections in Alaska, in which Sarah Palin was defeated, prompting Senator Cotton to claim the, the voting reform is a scam. Joining us is David Daly, Senior Fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal American Democracy, which helped spark the recent drive to reform gerrymandering. Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state elections to reform elections and uphold voting rights. A digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now, Daniel Gilfelder, who's an attorney based in Florida, who served as a law clerk and staff aide in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as Florida's Grim Reaper. He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Ulfelder. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And the ruling by the U.S. District Judge down in Florida, Eileen Cannon, who was appointed by Trump, that came down on Monday, Labor Day, has been largely greeted by law analysts and professors, etc., as being pretty thin, to put it politely, in its justification. So how do you see this? Is this really just a case of of politics trumping the law? Um, well, I, I think that there's a couple things that stood up to me. First of all, uh, the, the, the date she issued the order. I mean, uh, federal courts were closed on Labor Day. Uh, I think potentially she was hopeful this wouldn't get as much attention, but it clearly has. I think 
the fact that she's issued uh, basically an injunction against this case moving forward is very problematic. Uh, the fact that she's appointed a special master uh, because she's felt that she needed the reputational harm that a future indictment could could cause to former President Trump is is really that that's what stood out to me the most that that she would take these steps that I don't think are really even necessary in order to protect the reputation of Donald Trump. That that was really the the most stark and problematic aspect of the the order. And of course Trump himself could have called for a special master immediately, uh, which he didn't do. Well, he did he, ask for a special. Did, he did ask for one. Yes, he asked for a special master. Did from day one? I didn't realize. Oh, uh, he did. Yes, he did request that. And but it's you know yes he did. Right. Well, you know he's being afforded privileges that aren't available to average citizens, and he's no longer president. So what is this ruling based on? It on privilege document? It can't be based on executive privilege, surely. Well, yeah, that's what it's very unclear because she's suggesting that the special master should make a, a, a review these documents for privilege. I mean, there's no reason why she couldn't make that review. I mean, she's a, a federal judge. Uh, there's nothing that precluded her from if she felt the need to do some sort of review of these documents. I don't think to appoint a special master is is something that is really the, the appropriate thing to be doing here. Well, but doesn't isn't that Trump's modus operandi, to delay? And doesn't this delay, isn't this just a delaying tactic? It seems to me that's, yes, that seems to me the most beneficial thing that has happened as a result of this, because now they have to get a special master appointed, and in order to have a special master appointed for this particular task, there's a lot of there aren't a lot of people who are going to qualify because it involves national security. It involves a lot of requirements that a lot of people just walking around, judge, former judges or attorneys, do not have those qualifications. I mean, because we're going to, they're going to be looking at documents that are classified, you know, apparently national security documents potentially, and so it's not like just any lawyer or judge, former judge, can just walk off the street and satisfy what is needed to, to 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 be a special master for this particular purpose. So they're going to have to find somebody, they're going to have to agree upon, the judge is going to have to appoint it, the person's going to have to review documents, There's there may be an appeal of this decision, but her order also places, appears to put a stay on the investigation. So that also slows things down. So it, it's really a bad order in terms of providing justice, providing confidence in our court system. I think I was I was yesterday with my family, you know, on a day off, it's a day off, and I was shocked to see that this type of order of this magnitude comes out on a, on a federal holiday. I mean, that, 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 that raised the flag immediately, and when I read it, I was just really surprised that the basis for it was to protect the reputation of former President Trump. That's not really the job of a federal judge to be concerned with the reputation of a person that she says may be indicted. I mean, then we're talking about, are we going to be in a situation where judges are going to now look at who potential criminal defendants are? And well, this person's reputation, I mean, anybody that gets indicted's reputation is going to be affected. So just because the person who's under investigation happily actually appointed you to the position, that means that that's the other part, too, is that he appointed her. She was actually confirmed by the U.S. Senate several days after Trump lost the election. So that's a, there's problems with this all over the place. It's clearly not a good order, and it really is unfortunate because it creates a stigma and reputational issue with the federal court system. I was a law clerk for a federal judge in, my, in the same Southern District right out of law school. So I know how important it is to have federal judges that do not have these types of issues. 
Well, so does that mean then the the 11th US Court of Appeals panel could strike this down? Because again, most analysts say that her, her legal, the legal basis of her ruling is incredibly thin. Yeah, I mean, they have the right to appeal this, yes, and I don't know if they will or not. I mean, if there is an appeal, they'd probably want to get a stay of this order. But that just, yeah, that, again, delays things. And right now, there has been some suggestion that there has been, I guess, a policy that I've read that justice departments are hesitant to pursue political cases involving, you know, former politicians and politicians within 60 days of an election. So now we're, we're two months out from some significant elections, and I hope that this is not some sort of attempt to assist in that delay. And again, I'm speaking with Daniel Yulfelder, who is an attorney based in Florida, who serves as a law clerk and staff aide in the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as the Florida Grim Reaper. He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to DeSantis. Well, it's very likely, from what I'm I'm told from insiders in the Justice Department, that the train has left the station in terms of an inevitable indictment of Trump because the the gravity of of the almost treasonous behavior, let's not mince our words, that's what it is. You've got, what, 43 top secret folders with no contents? I mean, what in God's name happened to the contents? Those folders have notations about what the file numbers are. So the Director of National Intelligence is is conducting an investigation. Now, uh, Judge Cannon's ruling says that the uh, DNI's investigation should proceed so the DNI is going to be looking for all of these documents that are missing, many of them the most classified in the country. And what happens if they can't find them? And we don't even know whether Trump squirreled away documents at Bedminster and at Trump Tower and other places. That's what his former national security advisor, John Bolton, is saying. So this is the most amazing situation where a politically appointed judge by Trump is doing a politically advantageous move to help him I mean, it suggests that the GOP has completely lost its mind. I thought this was a a party that was concerned about national security. And the idea that the sort of cult of Trump has extended to the people that he appointed to the federal bench, that's just so depressing. It's bad enough having them in the Congress and the Senate, these Trumpsters. But my God, if this is a case where He's gotten what he wanted by appointing people in a quid pro quo in the judiciary. And he appointed her and she's given him a favor. This is beyond belief. Yeah, and we don't have any proof that that's what happened. I mean, you know, no. but but I mean, you look at the, she had never she had limited experience. She'd only been an attorney, I think, since 2007. She actually let her bar license in Florida lapse for not paying the dues. Um, she she was Bronco Ruby, apparently, according to her application, requested for her to apply. So, I mean, she had been a lawyer, you know, 12 years before she was asked to be a federal judge. A federal judge is a lifetime appointment. And it's those are positions that should be for the top in their, you know, those are the top folks. I mean, not people that have just barely been a lawyer. So, uh, she, I don't think she was qualified to do this position. And and she was never a judge, right? No. Never a judge. Uh, and not, Did she and gets an appointment? And, and, yeah, after the election. You know, look, remember when Merrick Garland, how they held up him, you know, who was who was on the District Court of D.C. Court of Appeals, and Mer- Mitch McConnell was able to prevent him from being put on the U.S. Supreme Court because of, you know, there was a presidential election. But this woman, who had no judicial experience, had... Limited litigation experience was appointed by President Trump to a position in a district where he lived. I mean, he knew when he left he was going to be living in Palm Beach, in all likelihood. And she's appointed and approved after he loses the election. And then she gets his case and then she issues this really problematic order on a federal holiday 
to protect what she's saying, to to address the reputational damage to the person who appointed her. It really doesn't look good. And it's really doesn't look, I can't, I'm trying to find something good about it. And I really can't find anything that's good about it for the respect for our judiciary. Well, before I got onto a rant about how, you know, we've become so tribal that it seems hopeless. I mean, even the, even the, the Joint Chiefs of Staff and, in the U.S. military are starting to be concerned about our military readiness because of the divisions in this country, largely driven by Trump, where Americans are turning against each other and we're so polarized that the polarization has reached the point where the GOP is completely blind to the idea that the evidence before them that seems to indicate the president's involved in either in treason or in, in reckless disregard for national security, and it doesn't register with any of them. So when you mentioned earlier that we're two months out from an election, there's no way that the DOJ is going to indict Trump until after the election at any rate, even if that's the case. And I believe that is the case, that they plan on it. But now they can't continue their investigation. The DNI's investigation is allowed to continue, according to Judge Cannon. So what happens if the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, says, we've come to the conclusion that there's so many classified documents missing that and we can't find them, and we don't know why Trump took them and what he's done with them, so that we have to assume the worst, what happens then? Do they go to the DOJ and and suggest that there should be a charge of treason? Well, I think what this is all showing is that when you have a person that has no respect for the law and who has had immense power and continues to have immense power, that there are no rules. I mean, it's it's to predict what's going to happen when you have somebody like this who is willing to do anything possible to stay out of prison, to still be influential, to be president when he lost an election. We know he's capable of anything. The problem is, who else is assisting him? And if you have a federal judge who issues an order like this on a federal holiday and and to try to protect his reputation. (laughs) I mean, we're getting close to running out of protections when you have that happen, because a federal judge serves the United States and the United States Constitution and not Republicans or Democrats. It's a lifetime appointment. And this woman chose to go beyond what is her duty. And she, you know, they didn't ask for the criminal case to be stopped. There wasn't even a request for that. She did that on her own. (laughs) I mean, she gave Trump more than what he even asked for in the documents. So it really, I think ultimately it causes some increases to the lack of confidence in in our judicial system when these things happen. I don't think the timing of this was a coincidence. You know, she figured probably she would get less coverage on a holiday, um, but that's clearly not going to happen. But it's not a federal judge's job to try to protect the reputation of, of, of a person like this. And that, that was what was the most troubling to me is that she actually sets in her order. <laughs> she knows, you know, she says, I think she knows he's going to be indicted. So, I mean, it's just very, as an attorney, I've been raised by attorneys. I worked for a federal judge right out of law school in the same district. It's very disconcerting to see what happened. So we got to, and it's not just Trump, but some of the blames got, surely got to be shared by Mitch McConnell and Leonard Leo of the Federalist Society who provided the list of all of these unqualified right. ju- young judges that they've stacked the judiciary with. Yeah, this woman is 40. She, she's in her early 40s. I've looked, you know, I, I read her application to the, to the Senate. She tried like six cases as an attorney. Uh, she failed to keep up with her Florida bar dues. She, the one thing, she, I don't think she failed to keep up with the dues for the Federalist Society. She, she listed being a member of the Federalist Society. And so I guess basically that's all it takes to be a federal judge in this country if, if, for certain situations. I mean, you're in the Federalist Society. 
According to the application she filled out, Marco Rubio asked her if she wanted to be a judge. I mean, the federal judges in this country should not be, be picked based on whether they're a member of a certain political organization. It should be based on your skills, your experience, your, your respect for the law, your respect for the Constitution, not for your respect for the person that puts you in the position. Well, Daniel Yulfiller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Ufelder, who is an attorney based in Florida, who has served as a law clerk and a staff aide to the White House, the United States Attorney General's Office, the United States Senate, the United States House of Representatives, and at various law firms in Florida and Washington, D.C., known widely as Florida's Grim Reaper. He works to draw attention to Governor Ron DeSantis' disastrous mishandling of the COVID pandemic, and his organization, Remove Ron, is dedicated to funding any future Democratic challenger to Ron DeSantis. We're going to take a brief station break and back to the UK to get an assessment of Britain's new Prime Minister, Liz Truss. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Paul Whiteley, a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, where he does research in political communication, political economy, and elections, public opinion, and voting behavior. He was previously professor of political science at the University of Arizona and the Pamela Harriman Professor of Government and Public Policy at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Then, after returning to Britain as a professor of politics at the University of Sheffield, he moved to the University of Essex in 2001, and he's the author or co-author of some 27 books and more than 100 academic articles, and was appointed a fellow of the British Academy in 2012, and is a regular on broadcast media commenting on contemporary British politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Whiteley. Hello. Well, thanks for joining us, Paul. And the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, made her, uh, she went up and visited the Queen in Balmoral, uh, came back down, it was raining, they had to bring the dais back and forth, but eventually she made a brief speech, which I didn't find particularly compelling. Do you think she's a strong enough candidate to be Prime Minister now? I mean, if essentially the next election would be in January of 2025. Do you expect her to last that long? Well, um, the numbers don't look good for her if you look at the opinion polling. Um, YouGov poll published yesterday uh, showed that only 14% of Britons uh, thought she would be an improvement on Boris Johnson. And 27% thought she would be worse and the rest were kind of in between. So she doesn't start with a high reputation and it's probable that she's not going to have much of a honeymoon, if you know what I mean. Presidents typically have a honeymoon for a few, for a period after they've been elected in the United States, and so do prime ministers. But it doesn't look like she's going to have much of a honeymoon. But um, she's announcing a big uh, uh, plan to support um, Britons in the fuel crisis that we're facing. You know, the rising uh, price of gas, rising price of um, petrol and so on. It's affected Europe much more than the United States. And it's a really toxic issue here. And so she has a chance to turn this around, but she's going to have to work fast. But the crisis in energy and gas bills and electric bills Mm -hmm. for the average household have risen sharply as a result largely of the war in Ukraine and boycotts or attempted boycotts of Russian energy. It's, I'm surprised that the British government hasn't got their hands around this a little earlier. Have they been distracted by all of the political problems with uh, Boris Johnson? Yes, I think they have. Uh, the uh, campaign um, 
to get the new prime minister to elect a new leader for the Conservative Party has been going on for the whole of the summer. And uh, they've been touring the country, speaking to Conservative Party members who are the electorate in this case. And um, so really not much has been done. Things have been put off. And it's had a bad effect on support for the Conservative Party. Uh, again, looking at polling, um, Labour now, the main opposition, is now between 10 and 15 percent ahead in voting intentions. The implication being if there was a very early election, they would probably win it. Um, so neglecting the crisis, so to speak, um, has cost the government um, quite a bit. And I think um, they'll be looking to turn this round if they can do it. Um, but it is a big problem, um, and it's affecting uh, political uh, leaders right across Europe, especially in Germany, which has been particularly affected by um, Putin's war. And again, I'm speaking with Paul Whiteley, who's a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex in the UK, where his research is into political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behaviour. So when you look at what she's proposing, the contradiction isn't there. She wants to give subsidies to regular folk who can't pay their bills, or at least she's talking about that. At the same time, she wants to give massive tax cuts to the, to the very wealthy. Yeah, it doesn't add up. But that's partly because uh, up to this point, she's been appealing to a, spe- a very specific audience, namely the Conservative Party members. Um, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, uh, party membership is a bit different in European democracies from the United States. Uh, these are people who are typically equivalent, not, not necessarily to registered Democrats or registered Republicans, but equivalent to people who give money to the party. People who think of themselves as, say, Republican and will send money to the party. And so it's a bit more than just being a supporter. Um, now, it turns out that a lot of them, uh, Conservative Party members, are um, rather old. Uh, a recent survey a couple of years ago said that uh, 40% of them were over the age of 65, retired. So they look at the world rather differently from the rest of the population. And they like the idea, as part of the Conservative tradition and values, of a small state and low taxes. And in some ways, um, they've inherited this point of view from Margaret Thatcher, who, as you know, was very close to Ronald Reagan. And both Mrs. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan believed in the small state. And, you know, the government was the problem. You cut it down and so on. And so they liked to hear the message that she was going to cut taxes and make government small. But (laughs) now she's in office. She has to appeal to the wider electorate. And the conservative electorate, um, and we know about this from various surveys, aren't aren't concerned about tax cuts. They just want help to deal with this um, price rises. And, um, you know, it is alarming. Uh, The average um, energy bill for a house in Britain is just under £2,000. And that's that's, that's just over $2,000 or thereabouts. Now, next month, it's going to go up to three and a half thousand pounds. That's the kind of jump that people are facing in their bills as the winter approaches. And if we have a very bad winter, then lots of people are going to be sitting in their homes cold because they can't afford to turn on the heating. So there's a lot of fear and concern. And this is a really big issue. And naturally enough, people in that situation aren't that worried about tax cuts, which might bring them benefits in a year or something. They want action now. So essentially, she's going to have to do a U-turn very quickly and start spending money on a big scale and not necessarily repudiate the idea of um, reducing taxes, but basically put it on the back burner and say, "We're, we're going to get around to this eventually. But for now, we've got to spend money. And the risk is if she uh, goes too far, if she tries to do both, then financial markets will react very badly. And um, 
In fact, the pound has been falling uh, in value vis-a-vis the dollar for some time. And it's not far off parity, um, which is an unusual situation. And so if financial markets get spooked, you could have a situation where there's a run on the pound. That means imports into Britain are going to be more expensive and it'll make inflation even worse. So she's actually walking a fine line to try to um, reassure people that their bills, they will get help with their bills, while at the same time um, avoiding the very point you made, which is how can you expect to be financially, uh, fiscally responsible if you're cutting taxes and spending a great deal more at the same time? (laughs) So, Paul, widely, when you mentioned the the exorbitant price of energy bills for a household in, in the UK, $2,000 and $3,000 soon, and particularly facing a winter. This, of course, is Putin's strategy, which is putting the squeeze on the Germans as well to get the West, to get the NATO allies to sort of get a little wobbly on their support for Ukraine and feel the pain. And you're suggesting that the pain is coming. Why are the prices so high? Is is, Is this a supply and demand problem? Yes, it is. Um, the, the, uh, energy is fairly volatile. Oil prices and gas prices in particular, uh, natural gas being pumped um, into Europe. And over the years, uh, largely led by Angela Merkel, the previous German chancellor, have uh, been trying to build bridges to the Russians, uh, buy uh, gas and, and oil from them, And the hope has been, and it's a feature of American policy too, that if you trade with people and you have close ties in a trading sense, then you might be able to build trust and cooperation and ultimately preserve the peace. Well, unfortunately, the strategy has failed miserably in the case of Putin, who's turned out to be really um, a bit of a thug, a, a godfather in political terms. And um, the odd thing is, he's crashing his own economy by doing this because the main exports of the Russian economy is is natural gas and um, oil. So he, he he seems determined to trash his own economy in in pursuit of this strange vision of rebuilding the Soviet Union. Um, so we're dealing with somebody who is very you know, potentially irrational and strange. And so these tactics, I don't think, will work. I mean, the surprising thing is that NATO um, allies have been brought closer together um, to uh, oppose Russian aggression. And, uh, you know, NATO was a little bit moribund before this came up, um, especially during the years of President Trump. But now it's working very well and working close together. And President Biden's working with Europeans. And I'm sure Liz Truss will work very well with him on that issue. Putin's uh, brought about, in a way, his worst nightmare of unifying NATO and the Balkan country, uh, sorry, the Baltic countries, uh, which were previously neutral, Sweden and Finland, now want to um, join NATO. So um, it's produced solidarity in Europe. And my guess is, my judgment is that even though things are going to be very difficult for Europeans, especially in Germany, talking about rationing and so on of um, of gas, they'll stay together because they see the threat of um, Russia as real and uh, they don't want to do anything that would encourage Putin to go further. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Paul Whiteley, let's turn back to Liz Truss. She'll be the third female prime minister in the UK, all of whom have been from the Conservative Party. She grew up with left-wing parents. Her mother marched in these anti-nuclear campaigns. She was a Liberal Democrat when she was at Oxford University. She spoke in 1994. She spoke in favour of abolishing the monarchy. Yes, that's Uh, true. And then she switched to the Conservatives then, and uh, she worked as an economist for Shell Oil, uh, married an accountant, uh, Hugh O'Leary, 
has two daughters and was promoted by David Cameron to Environment Secretary and then worked as Justice Secretary under Theresa May and then eventually as Foreign Secretary under Boris Johnson, where she I don't recall her having much of an impact. I thought she was a bit of a lightweight. What's your reading on her? I mean... Well, she's a bit of a chameleon, is the truth. And actually, the little biography you just read out um, shows this. Um, I think her tutor at Oxford, I read somewhere, said she's very determined and strongly in favor of something until she's no longer in favor of that. And she does a 180 degree turn and then she's strongly in favor of something else. She switches and changes in a way. She models herself a little bit on uh, Margaret Thatcher. But Margaret Thatcher uh, used the phrase, um, the lady is not for turning. She wouldn't change uh, her policies once it was uh, put in place. But I don't think Liz Truss is the same. Um, and she was a strong Remainer during the um, the uh, Brexit referendum, the referendum on membership of the European Union. But then all, almost overnight after the result came in in 2016, she became a strong Brexiter. So she's got a bit of a track record of being all over the place um, a little bit. Um, and that certainly makes her different from Margaret Thatcher. But she also has a reputation, which unfortunately her predecessor, Boris Johnson, did not, of being hardworking. Um, there's a phrase they use in Whitehall terms of a minister can be good if they do the red boxes. Now, what they mean by that is that ministers are given documents to sign and, and reports to read and work on uh, when they go home in red boxes. And uh, they're expected to do this and come back the following day, you know, well briefed and ready for meetings and decisions. Well, Boris Johnson was very poor at doing that. He'd make it up as he went along. But she has a reputation for hard work and looking at the detail and therefore is likely uh, the operation of 10 Downing Street is likely to be less chaotic than it was under Boris Johnson. Um, so that may be a plus for her. And she's quite capable uh, of, the, of changing 180 degrees if it's appropriate. Question is, with the Conservatives so far behind Labour and Boris Johnson having, you know, damaged their brand and their reputation, can she make this up before the general election comes along in just over two years? And possibly before then. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Paul Whiteley. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Paul Whiteley, who is in the UK, where he's a professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, where his research is in political communication, political economy and elections, public opinion and voting behavior. He was previously professor of political science at the University of Arizona and the Pamela Harriman Professor of Government and Public Policy at the, Gov at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. And then after returning to Britain as a professor of politics at the University of Sheffield, he moved to the University of Essex in 2001. And he's the co-author and author of more than 27 books and 100 academic articles and was appointed a fellow of the British Academy in 2012 and is a regular on broadcast media commenting on contemporary British politics. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how ranked choice voting made a difference in the recent elections in Alaska in which Sarah Palin was defeated, prompting Senator Cotton to claim the voting reform is a scam. Yeah. I was born in the cold, it's not make-believe I hit the ice like a maple leaf I can't spit if I don't rate the beat Don't push cause you're gonna make me hate the beat My cousin got iPhones on sale for cheap The street raised me, now I'm gonna raise the street My mind might flip, go straight for weeks I went to look for it, then it came to me When I was young, never had a brain for trees Slush puppy kids swap brain for freeze ES the game changer, I changed degrees Cause a blizzard anywhere I take my feet But let me take it to a place where I chase my peas London, the place where I grate my cheese And if you can't hustle, you won't last there I've seen people crumble in a half year Swear, I like when I Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Daly, a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat... If, <laughs> I can't say that. The True Story Behind the Secret Plan to Steal America's Democracy, 
which helped spark the recent drive to reform gerrymandering, Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights, a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for the Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Daly. Pleasure to be back, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And the surprise victory of the Democrat in Alaska for the one House seat there, Mary Peltola, she won in part because of ranked choice voting, although her campaign was upbeat and she did appeal to Alaskan interests and and the independence of uh, Alaska's voters. But already on the night of her defeat Wednesday night, Sarah Palin criticized the new ranked choice voting system as being weird. And then Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas called the ranked choice voting a scam to rig elections against Republicans. So it's nothing new that when Republicans win, they don't complain about the elections, but when they lose, they say it's rigged or they're victims of voter fraud. But that aside, uh, how much of a role did ranked choice voting play in Mary Peltola's victory? No, it's a really good question. What ranked choice voting really does is it determines the candidate with the widest and broadest support. And whenever you've got multiple candidates running in a race, it assures that the winner has got at least 50% of the vote, which our elections essentially ought to be about, right? Um, so what happened in Alaska is you had effectively three candidates running. You had Mary Peltola, um, a Democrat, and you had two Republican candidates. You had Sarah Palin and uh, Nick Begich. And in the first round, what we saw was that Peltola was still in first place, um, and you had Palin and Begich following her. Um, And in the final round, it was much the same, except uh, under ranked choice, it works kind of like an instant runoff. So Begich is eliminated, and Begich's votes are redistributed uh, to their second choice. And those second choice votes actually ended up putting Peltola over the top um, a- across 50%. And I think a lot of people are surprised by that, but I'm not really sure that they should be, right? I mean, Sarah Palin's unpopularity numbers in Alaska were 61%. It was really hard for her to reach a majority of Alaskans. Um, Peltola won the first round. She was ahead after the first round of of this, of this race. Um, and Alaska is is less a red state than, as you said in the intro, it's a really independent state. Yes, Republicans outnumber Democrats, but unaffiliated and nonpartisan voters outnumber Republicans two to one. The state's had an independent governor. Um, So this is a state that I would say rejects extremism and, and values choice and wants to go its own way, and ranked choice voting allows them to do that. And Begich's voters, about 15,000 of them, the majority of them, 11,000 of Begich's voters, in their second choice, opted for the Democrat, Beltola, over the Republican, Sarah Palin. So that's how she won. But there's a history here, isn't there, that goes back to when Sarah Palin promoted a Tea Party candidate against in the Senate race against Lisa Murkowski and she lost the primary vote in 2010 but then in that same election she came back as a write-in candidate in the general election and which is hard to do but she actually won and she's obviously a, a senator and to some extent she owes her Senate seat to a lot of Democratic voters does she not? That's right that's right um And what happened in Alaska back in 2020 is Alaska adopted the voters of the state 
um, adopted a statewide initiative uh, that uh, changed the way that their elections worked. Uh, and, and wasn't that, that inspired by Senator McCaskey, or at least in response to what happened with McCaskey? Uh, I think that probably did play an important role there. Um, what Alaska, Maine, a couple of states that use ranked choice voting in statewide elections are states that really value their traditions of independent politics. They like to elect third-party candidates. They like to elect independents. They like to elect write-in candidates, right? But what they don't like is when you have a three-way race or a four-way race sometimes, and somebody wins with 34, 35, 36% of the vote, which means that 64% of the people wanted somebody else. Uh, And so ranked choice is a really great tool whenever you have more than two candidates in a race to ensure that the person who wins is the person who has genuinely the widest and deepest support in the state. You know, I mean, I mean, Senator Cotton is wrong when he says that this, you know, rigs elections. Uh, uh, Sarah Palin is wrong when she says that this is rigged. This is a really simple system that ensures majority rule. Voters understand it. Voters like it. People use it all around the world. We all use ranked choice in our daily life every day. Uh, And it ensures that the winners of our elections actually have broad support among the people. And voters get to choose between a wider number of candidates without having to worry that voting for the person who they like the most is going to help elect the person that they like the least. Ranked choice is good for voters. And we sure had some examples of um, of what you just described, people voting for the candidate they wanted the most, ending up with the candidate they wanted the least. And that is a product of our winner-take-all system. Third parties obviously have a hard time getting traction in this country, but ranked choice seems to be the simplest way to get around that paralysis, is it not? I think that's right. I think I think ranked choice is is good whenever voters have got more than two choices. It makes it easier whenever voters do, because otherwise you're voting kind of blind. You're you're trusting in opinion polls, trying to cast a strategic vote. Um, a choice in an election ends up being weaponized against you if you can only pick one candidate and if you can't identify a second choice. And that's how we end up with folks winning elections with 33, 34% of the vote when a majority of voters in that election wanted to choose somebody else. We've been seeing it around the country um, in so many U.S. House uh, primaries this you know, even U.S. Senate primaries this year, in which you've got five, six candidates running for a seat, you know, sometimes as many as 12 candidates running, um, and the winner, you know, for, for one Oklahoma race was 14% of the vote. You had a, a couple of primaries in Massachusetts over the last couple of cycles that the winner has had 21%. Um, and in these districts that are already rigged for one side or the other through gerrymandering or in the kind of uncompetitive states, somebody wins 21% in a low turnout party primary, and then they effectively have got this safe seat in Congress, whereas ranked choice allows you to really pick between these candidates to identify your first, second, and third choice. Choice becomes a good thing. I mean, think back to the Republican presidential primary in 2016 with 17 candidates, the Democrats in 2020, where they had more than two dozen, we were all, you know, talking before the, the pandemic about, you know, you know, a, a, a divided convention and somebody winning the nomination with 22, 23% support from primary voters. And this cures that problem. Um, you know, it's not about, I mean, Senator Cotton, his concern is all wrong. This is about giving power to the voters to assure a majoritarian outcome. There is nothing that we ought to be worried about in that. And again, I'm speaking with David Daly, a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Heft, 
the true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which helped spark the recent drive to reform gerrymandering. Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights. And he's a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. He's also the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and the former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. Well, obviously, as I said earlier, when Republicans win, uh, the system works, and when they lose, uh, they cry fraud and and rigged, etc. And Trump, of course, has made that... You've noticed that as well, yes. (laughs) Yeah, and and now you've got, what, 80% of the Republican Party believing that Trump won the last election um, and that somehow Biden's an imposter, and that's become a bedrock belief in the GOP. And it's shocking to think that we're heading into an election where one of the two parties running don't accept the will of the voters in the last election. We have a major problem with American democracy. Biden pointed that out last Thursday night, although the main networks, ABC, NBC and CBS, did not carry his address. That's very true. And on CNN, right afterwards, when their White House correspondent came out and said that uh, he was making an important speech and that there's no two sides to the question of democracy, uh, he was uh, effectively pushed off the air the very next day. Uh, John Harwood left for the very next day. Um, So it's a really interesting question what's happening there right now. But our democracy is in a dangerous spot. And this kind of minoritarian rule is, is, is really plaguing us at, at multiple levels. You know, um, you know, certainly gerrymandering of state legislatures, certainly the, you know, a, a lack of a national popular vote has elected um, uh, uh, two presidents in the last 20 years that have uh, uh, lost the national popular vote. Um, you have the intrinsic baked-in minoritarian structure of the United States uh, Senate, um, which gives, you know, outsized power to smaller, whiter rural states. Um, So we should be looking for tools that can help us increase majoritarianism in our politics, that can help us um, get past the, the kind of polarization and extremism that we are seeing. A ranked choice is one of the most powerful tools that could help stabilize our democracy again and put this power back in the hands of the people. And I think it had a really effective, powerful, uh, validating performance in Alaska last week. So let's talk about the woman who's championed ranked choice voting, and particularly in Alaska, Catherine Gell. Do you know about her, the founder and chairwoman of the Nonpartisan Institute for Political Innovation? Certainly, yes. Tell us about her. Uh, well, um, I think she's one of many reformers uh, who understands the importance of ranked choice voting. Um, and what she has been promoting is a system of open primaries uh, that everybody runs in one primary. So we, we saw this in Alaska in the first round. They had, you know, several dozen candidates running in an open primary, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, and the four candidates with the highest vote totals in that primary advanced to a ranked choice runoff that was held last week. Um, well, that, that we got the results of last week. Um, and this is a system that um, certainly worked in Alaska. Um, It is an interesting tool in statewide races. Uh, I don't think it is enough of a tool, uh, say, in state legislative races or U.S. House races, where, you know, single winner districts that have have been gerrymandered already uh, kind of get in the way of of a tool like this from working. Um, I think there are some really important questions to be answered about how this system protects minority voters. But certainly in Alaska, um, that combination worked 
fairly well. So just in the last couple of minutes then, David Daly, you have ranked choice voting now in Alaska, and you have it in New York, you have it in Maine, and you have it in Utah. Is it spreading? It obviously should. Oh, it absolutely is absolutely spreading, yes. So I mean, ranked choice voting... Just going to say, what are the next states? Who's working on getting more states to adopt this system? Uh, this is one of the political reforms with absolutely the most momentum anywhere in the country. And I believe that that's because it's a nonpartisan tool that embraces majoritarianism and uh, fights polarization. Uh, so there, we just saw it expanded in New York City. Um, and the, you know, more than 10 million voters there, uh, have been using it, um, it is in the Bay area, San Francisco and Oakland, it's in New Mexico, it's in Utah, it's in Minnesota. Um, right choice voting is really on the move. Um, we at fair vote are looking to adopt it in, you know, 500 cities over the next several years. Um, we are seeing, you know, a number of cities and states uh, talking about this. And I think as voters see what happened in Alaska, as they see what's happened in Maine, they like this tool. Um, and as our primaries continue to get more and more crowded, voters understand that they need this as a tool if they are going to have a powerful vote. Well, David Daly, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Anytime at all. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with David Daly, who's a senior fellow for Fair Vote and the author of Rat Eft, uh, the true story behind the secret plan to steal American democracy, which helped spark the recent drive to reform gerrymandering. And Dave's second book, Unrigged, How Americans Are Battling Back to Save Democracy, chronicles the victories and defeats in state efforts to reform elections and uphold voting rights a digital media fellow at the Wilson Center for Humanities and the Grady School of Journalism at the University of Georgia. He is the former editor-in-chief of Salon.com and a former CEO and publisher of the Connecticut News Project. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Sing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here One more life.